There was an Archbishop of Canterbury uh, interview <clears throat> a few years ago, actually about seven, seven years ago to this day, an article came out. Dr. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was interviewed on BBC. And this is what the article said about the interview. The Archbishop of Canterbury argued that Christmas cards which showed the Virgin Mary cradling the baby Jesus, flanked by shepherds and wise men, were misleading. As for the scenes that depicted snow falling in Bethlehem, the Archbishop said the chance of this was very unlikely, quote, in a final blow to the traditional nativity story, Dr. Williams concluded that Jesus was probably not born in December at all. He said, quote, Christmas was when it was because it fit well with the winter festival, end quote. Now, of course, this announcement should have rocked the mainstream Christian world. It should have been on the news on every news program and front page of every newspaper. Instead, not a whisper. Why? Because people knew that already. It wasn't news. No one cared. It's a very short article, extremely short, about one paragraph. What does it have to do with us? Today, I would like to try to convince all of you to stop keeping Christmas. <laughs> now, Christmas is only five days away, so I have my job cut out for me. I understand that, but within the next hour and 15 minutes, I'll do my best. Now, we understand that, um, that Christmas is actually one of the easiest things to disprove. And yet in the mainstream Christian world, it's one of the hardest things to dislodge because of tradition. But there is a bigger issue. And if Christmas is about compromise, because that's what it is, <clears throat> the spirit of compromise, as the Archbishop pointed out, then actually there is something that pertains to all of us because we can all fall into compromise in one way or another. I'd like to talk about Christmas today, in particular the spirit behind Christmas, because it is the spirit of compromise. And that's something that pertains to all of us, can pertain to all of us, does pertain to all of us, in one way or another, from time to time. Let's read the story of Christ's birth in the book of Luke. I won't say the Christmas story because it is not the Christmas story. Sometimes it can seem like, you know, it's, it's too Christmassy to read Luke chapter 2. But, you know, the Catholic Church has not hijacked these scriptures. They are a part of God's word. And actually, as you read them and, and you think about it, they were a tremendous part of God's word, detailing the revelation, the arrival of the Messiah, and how excited those who this was revealed to were because of the coming of the Messiah. Luke chapter 2 and verse 
1, and it, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. We're not, not going to talk about every detail here, but the point was the Romans did not conduct censuses, censi, censi, what's the, whatever the <laughs> plural of census is, they, they didn't conduct a census in the wintertime. It would have been impossible. It would have been unpopular, horribly unpopular for people to not only be told to go to your place of origin so that we could assess your property and tax you, but also do it in the dead of winter when the weather was horrible and it was wet and cold. They didn't do it. That's what the historians tell us. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I understand if you grew up keeping Christmas or if you have gone to public school, you can't read that without the song starting to pour into your head. And I apologize for that. But it's scripture. You know, it's probably good from time to time for us to not feel like the Catholic Church has hijacked those passages. It was tremendous news about the coming Messiah. He was there. Verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And you can read the rest of the story, how they were uh, become aware of the arrival of the Messiah through the angel of the Lord. And it's an awesome story. Again, we understand that they were not living out in the fields in the wintertime. That's something that is common knowledge. <clears throat> they were not keeping their flocks at, at night in the dead of winter. Uh, first of all, the weather would have been horrible. Second of all, there would have been no forage. What's the point of keeping your, your flocks out in the fields when the grasses have, have died down? doesn't make any sense. The point is the Christmas story doesn't match with scripture at all. We understand that. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's look at another <clears throat> passage here that describes the beginning of the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Mr. John O'Gwen in the Tomorrow's World uh, article entitled, Is Christmas Christian? November and December 2004 explains that these were probably high-ranking Parthian officials. And he explains that Parthia was a powerful empire that, that was in the south of the 
Caspian Sea across the other side of the Euphrates, who actually was a rival to the Roman Empire. And that's who probably these were, which, and also they were Israelites. It's interesting to think about. You know, to whom else would it mean so much that the king of Israel, the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, had come than to the remnants of the nations of Israel in the Parthian Empire? It's interesting to think about. Sources also point out that they probably didn't come alone. You know, we have, the again, the nativity scenes, shows a few shepherds and three wise men. It didn't, doesn't say three, but several wise men. And they sort of just wandered through the desert for uh, weeks to get there. If we understand and we think through the implications of this, <clears throat> probably high officials from the Parthian Empire probably had a retinue of thousands of powerful soldiers to guard them Again, a powerful world-leading uh, world power at that time. And we can see the effect they had on Herod. Verse 3, when Herod heard the, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It probably wasn't just the fact that he heard of the king of the Jews being born, but that there were armed soldiers encamped around his city. Again, you don't see that on the nativity scene on your, your neighbor's lawn, right? Thousands of soldiers camped out. No. But that's probably what, what happened. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, the, the angel, really, probably, uh, leading and guiding them. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house... They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Another point of fact. He wasn't in the manger anymore, was he? He was in a house. And he wasn't child anymore. I mean, he wasn't a baby anymore. He was a child. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It says... When Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men who went left by a different way, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So the nativity scene in, in tradition puts all of these events at the birth of Jesus Christ, which is just not true. He could have been anywhere upwards to perhaps even uh, one or two years old. The point is, <clears throat> the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of compromise. Even when it's laid out, even when the facts are there in black and white, it's the spirit of compromise. 
Now, I know this is not anything new to all of you. <clears throat> you know this. But let's look at another place here. Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. To all of you who are in the Mrs. Lyons Bible class, you probably know what's in Jeremiah chapter 10. I won't ask any of the kids to raise their hand, though. But I could. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles, or be dismayed at the signs of heaven. And that's, of course, exactly what the world has done in mixing the myths and mixing the traditions and pagan ideas with God's word and compromising. The Bible doesn't talk about Santa Claus and mistletoe and, and reindeer, but when it does talk about some customs, it's very plain, isn't it? Verse 2, thus says the Lord, do not learn again the way of the Gentiles, for the Gentiles are dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the customs of the people are futile or empty or meaningless or vain. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold, they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple, they are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Don't be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. And what do we do in our culture? In other Germanic-influenced cultures around the world, we set up a Christmas tree, they set up a Christmas tree in their front room, right? And people will say, well, we don't worship it. We don't bow down to this tree. We just put it in a place of honor. We just light it up. We just open the drapes at night when everybody can see way away from the road, see right into our house, how much sense does that make, you know? <laughs> Open the drapes, everyone, it's the focal point of the house. Of course we don't worship that tree. We just venerate it. And then afterwards we take it out, we cut it up, and we burn it. And God was saying, look, this is why I've told you don't do that because it's nothing. It's not a God. It's just wood. Jeremiah chapter 9. He said, don't compromise. Don't compromise. <clears throat> Verse 12, Jeremiah chapter 9. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they've walked according to the dictates of their own hearts. And after the Baals, after the Canaanite gods that were in that land, which their fathers taught them, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. 
I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. What's the result of compromising God's laws? He said national captivity. I'll lead them into captivity. And of course we know that that's exactly where our people are going to. The word Baal just means Lord, and there were many Baals, local deities in Canaan. The chief Baal was pictured as a storm god, as a, uh, a god with a thunderbolt as a spear, we might say, not unlike Thor or, or Zeus, you know, in, in later cultures. He was also the god of fertility, symbolized by a bull, and the fertility of the land was the supposed result of the heinous and abominable rites and practices that were, that were engaged in, illicit practices, and fornication in its rituals, used in, in, in sort of a magical way to somehow make the crops come. God hated this because it was so awful. And yet, Israel fell into it. Church history tells us how some of these myths took hold in the church in more recent centuries. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. We read about the third era of, of the church, the Pergamos era beginning about 313 A.D. and, and going for 1260 years, as we read in Revelation 12, continuing all the way to about 1500. If you have a new King James Bible, it accurately calls this era the compromising church. A compromising church, beginning in the 4th century. It says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a, the wording is that there were some faithful, but a lot that had compromised that were not faithful. Pergamos was a city in Asia Minor, of course, a great center of idolatry. And this, of course, seems to be the, uh, one of the connections that he's making there in, in um, describing this era. Mr. O'Gwen tells the story of what was happening in the church at this time in the booklet, God's Church Through the Ages. And if you haven't read this in a while, dig it up again and read through it. It's, it's, it's fascinating and absolutely vital. 
that we understand the, the history and of what happened before because cycles repeat themselves. And lessons, if not learned, if not remembered, will be, have to be, tests will have to be taken again. He says this, after almost three centuries of on-again, off-again persecution by the Roman government, the Edict of Toleration was issued at Milan in 313 AD. Soon afterward, Christianity went from simply being officially tolerated by the Roman Empire to actually becoming the official state religion of the empire. Did this represent a success story for the church that Jesus Christ built? Had true biblical Christianity triumphed in the Roman Empire? Far from it. What we have seen is a Gentile-influenced religion that appropriated Christian terminology while retaining pagan traditions, all enforced by the Roman Emperor Constantine. Much more detail in this fascinating story. Take a look at it if you haven't read it in a while. One of the things that we find is that Constantine, the Roman emperor, supposedly a Christian now, after his supposed conversion, didn't mind if people still worshipped him, though, in the uh, cult of emperor worship. In fact, he would have people pray and offer sacrifice to an image of himself that was on a tall and, and large column, portraying himself as the sun god with, guess what, a thunderbolt in his hand. Sounds like Baal. Those in the church who knew better but wanted his protection, wanted his blessing, had aligned themselves with him, remained silent. Didn't say anything. Just let it happen. And so the so-called Christian church grew with people confusing worship of Christ with worship of the emperor or the sun god, really Baal, really Mithra, who we understand and even in the Catholic Encyclopedia it says that Mithra's birthday was December 25th. They were compromising the truth. And the problem is, once you start down that path, one compromise leads to another. Those who didn't compromise were forced to flee to mountainous areas, and this is, as Mr. O'Gwen explains, part of perhaps the, the, the name um, Pergamos uh, means fortified, and perhaps is referring to the fact that they had to flee to the, to the wilderness areas. Mountains get away from the urban areas to try to uh, escape persecution. If you have the, the book by Mr. Ivor Fletcher, uh, again, another fascinating read in chapter 8. He talks about the church in the wilderness. No matter where they went, however, eventually the long reach of the apostate church with the backing of the state pressured and persecuted them, and, and, and some, sadly, compromised, even from the true church. Mr. O'Gwen continues, he says, At some point in their history, many Paulicians, one of the groups that 
we identify as the true church in this early period of, of that time period. Many of them succumb to a fatal error. They reason that they could outwardly conform with many of the practices of the Catholic Church in order to avoid persecution as long as in their hearts they knew better. This road of compromise led many to have their children christened and others to attend Mass. Christ prophesied of this, admonishing the church at Pergamos about those who held to pagan immoral doctrines, what we just read. The result of their compromising was that Christ allowed severe persecution to come upon them. It's a sad story for many, a story of compromise. Mixing truth with error because of pressure, because of persecution. Now what are we to learn from this? First of all, don't keep Christmas. Don't keep Christmas. So I hope none of you will keep Christmas in five days. I understand you won't. But in the broader sense, can we examine our lives to see if though we don't keep this horrible pagan day, do we have or do we let creep in from time to time the same attitude of compromise and spirit of compromise operating in our lives? That's really the point. Might be in different issues. It might be in different ways from time to time. But do we have the spirit of compromise? Let's try to break this down a little more specifically as we go on. What are some key points about compromise that we can, we can focus on? Number one. Number one. Anyone can be deceived. Anyone can be deceived. As soon as we think we cannot be deceived, we better put our name in there that we can be deceived if we're not careful. You know, <clears throat> again, I, I'm in jest as we talk about Christmas here. I don't believe that, that you know, any of us here are just on the verge of keeping Christmas, just being tempted to keep Christmas, barely holding back from keeping Christmas. But, you know, stop for a moment and think. The same system headed by a woman riding a beast that was persecuting those people back there will someday enforce a mark we read of. Let's turn over there, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. You know, right now when you tell people, I, I don't keep Christmas, all you get is a quizzical look. Maybe they think you're a little weird. They might ask you why. They might just look at you. But what about when someday it means being arrested? Possibly. Revelation chapter 13. And verse 15, he says, he, granted, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, 
as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And we understand that the mark of the beast is essentially disobedience to God's law. Specifically, things like Sunday keeping. Well, Christmas goes right along with that. This same system is going to rise again. We know it. It's prophesied. Why is it important that we learn to not compromise now in our, in our daily lives? Because pressure to compromise in the not-too-distant future is going to come, and it's going to come hard. That's what the book says. And we must never underestimate the power of deception. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now we might think, well, you know, today we're, we're more sophisticated. We're, we're more immune to deception. We can see through it, right? Than those people back there. I don't know. If anything, I, I think we'd have to conclude our generation is more easily deceived than the generations of the first and second century. It took about 400 years for the church of God to come to the point where some compromised to keeping Christmas the first time. How many years did it take the second time? Mr. Armstrong died in 1986. Within about 10 years or so, give or take, plus or minus, some of God's people who knew it was wrong before were keeping Christmas. Brethren, if anything, we're probably more vulnerable today because of the media, because of perhaps, I don't know, the pressures that we, we have today. <clears throat> we have to not be frightened, but we have, have to be aware. We have to be careful. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be aware of the choices we're making now. Jesus said the day will come when deception will be so great, pressure so high, it's going to test all of us. Matthew 24 and verse 24, he said, False Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Will it be possible? That's up to us. That's up to us. We need to examine ourselves, recognize our vulnerabilities, and not, not be swayed. Number two, <clears throat> number two, the warning to not compromise is to the true church. The warning to not compromise is specifically to the true church. There was a YouTube video that was sent around this week. Some of us... Uh, 
get a chance to look at it, about a lunatic who gave an invocation at a city council meeting. I don't know where it happened. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, just absolutely bizarre. He was praising Allah, Buddha, Vishnu, Zeus, Thor, Satan, uh, Mother Earth. It was bizarre. I, I don't want to even want to read it. If you want to see it yourself, uh, Google search city council meeting praising Allah, comma, Satan, comma, etc. It's awful, you know. Um, bizarre, deeply disturbing, but it reflects our society, of course, today. What was interesting, half of the council members left before this person began. They obviously knew it was coming, and they were not wanting to be a part of it. They left. But what is more disturbing about half stayed. Five members or six members of the council stayed, bowed their heads, and stood there while this person went through this absolutely blasphemous, horrible pseudo-prayer. Now, you could think, you know, what is possibly wrong with these people? And there is something wrong. But we also have to understand our generation today is accepting this crazy stuff because they're just taking the next step from what their fathers compromised on a generation ago. And their fathers just compromised on what their fathers previously compromised on. It's all a progression. And all the compromise goes back. This is not the first generation to compromise. That's the point. There are layers of it, and a web of it goes back for generations. The same thing happened in the generation of Constantine. You know, the, the true followers of Jesus Christ did not just suddenly wake up one day wanting to apostatize and wanting to worship the emperor. There had been a gradual progression for centuries and we read of some of that even in the very first century let's look briefly over at the book of Jude very quickly even before the first apostles were dead what look what was happening there was always already compromise at work Jude chapter 1 and verse 3 he said, Beloved, when I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. By the 4th century, much of what was called Christianity was not the true church at all. There were a lot of heresies that had already been introduced. So who was the letter to Pergamos addressed to? Well, turn, turn back to <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. Revelation chapter 2 
and verse 12. All of these churches are God's church. All of these messages are to God's true church. All of the warnings are to those who are holding to the truth so that they won't fall away. He says, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, and then he explains all these things and he gives the warning. And finally he says, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Brethren, what's the lesson for us? We have to take Revelation 2 and 3 personally and apply it to ourselves. As Mr. Armstrong used to explain, it's, it's eras, but it's also every condition can be applied and needs to be applied to, to true Christians so that we take the warnings of all the church eras. The whole world is deceived. We know that. Revelation 12.9 says that. They're already in Satan's grip. Some will respond to the message that we are getting out to the world. But most will not. We're not trying to convert the world. That's God's job. We have to preach it as a warning. But we need to take these messages to of Revelation 2 and 3 personally because the messages are to the churches of God, to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Well, who's that? It's those who have not been deceived. It's those who are holding to the truth, those who are holding fast so they will not be deceived. Even you children, if you can understand what, what we're talking about, this message is for you. God loves you. He cares for you. He's going to take care of you in the, the coming years. He wants you to succeed, to be happy, to be fulfilled. But you have to take heed as well. You have to think about your priorities. You have to think about compromise. Think about your choices. What a special privilege it is that we have this understanding and we can even understand the warning. It's for us. Number three. Number three. Compromise begins in the heart. Revelation 2 talks about the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The interesting thing is these two words are roughly equivalent. Balaam is a Hebrew name, means he who destroys or swallows up the people. Nicholas is a Greek name, meaning the overcomer of the people. So essentially, Jesus Christ was talking about two individuals or systems representing the breaking down of people's relationship with God, destroying people through compromise. The Nicolaitans are identified with a sect of the Gnostics, a heretical group uh, perverting the truth of God way back even in the first century. Balaam, we know from the Old Testament, <clears throat> who led Israel into idolatry. Let's 
turn over to Numbers chapter 22, and we pick up the story of Balaam. We find here, Quite instructive for us, Numbers chapter 22 and verse, verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of of Israel. So he came up with a plan. He was going to find a sorcerer who would curse Israel. And Balaam happened to be the sorcerer that uh, he checked into. So in verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring you back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God told him, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So that's, of course, what uh, he told the, the emissaries there. He said, verse 13, So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Interesting the way he worded it, didn't he? The Lord has refused, you know, guys, I would love to help you. But, you know, God, God just said, I can't. If it was just up to me, I would help you curse Israel. But uh, the Lord has said, I, I cannot. You know, sometimes we, 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 we blame our actions on you know, someone else. It sounds like he sort of wanted to do it, but he wasn't able to. Well, they went back, they went to Balak, and then, of course, Balak wasn't happy. And so he brought uh, more princes, more numerous, more honorable than they. And they came back to Balaam, and they said, Please let nothing, verse 16, hinder you from coming to me. I will certainly honor you greatly. I will do whatever you say to me, uh, etc. Verse 18, Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, interesting. So now he's, he's put a price on it. He's saying, you know, even if you give me all of this money, hint, 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 I can't do it that way. Hint, hint, hint. Maybe you'll, you'll have to find some other way. There was something going on in Balaam in his attitude because notice... Actually, God said, go ahead with them, but make sure you speak my words. Notice in verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. 
Why was the angel of the Lord angry with Balaam? He was just doing what he, God said. God said he could go. There was something wrong in his heart. Maybe he was mulling that over in his mind. The gold and the silver. Now I can't disobey God, but how can I get my hands on that gold and silver? There was an attitude. Well, you know the story how he was going along and then the angel of the Lord stood in the way and uh, the donkey turned aside in verse 23. Balaam struck the donkey. Uh, verse 25, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall, crushed Balaam's foot. Uh, verse 26, the angel of the Lord went further, stood in a narrow place. When the donkey saw the angel, verse 27, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Unbelievable. A donkey talks to him. But even more unbelievable, he answered the donkey. I mean, what would you do if you went home and your dog started talking to you on the front porch? What would your first reaction be? To answer him? And he did. He said to the donkey, because you have abused me, I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. So now he's negotiating with the donkey. I mean, unbelievable. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with the drawn sword. He said, now, and that, then he understood, <clears throat> the angel of the Lord said, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. There was something in Balaam's heart he was willing to narrowly comply with God's command to not say a curse against Israel. But there was something wrong with his heart. He wanted to compromise. He wanted to do the wrong thing. His way was perverse. Well, we find he gets there and... We won't go through every detail, but Balak takes him up to a high place in chapter 23, and they have a sacrifice, and he goes and seeks the word of the Lord, and he comes back and he blesses Israel. Balak's not happy. In uh, verse 13, he says, well, I'll take you to a different place. Maybe it'll, it'll work this time. And he takes him up to another high place. And in verse 19 through 24, Balaam again blesses Israel. It doesn't work. So then, Balak tries again. In verse 27, he, he comes to another place. And here's an interesting little sidelight. Chapter 24 and verse 1. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, so he was a sorcerer. You get a picture of what he really was, but he set his face toward the wilderness. 
So he raised his eyes, he saw Israel encamped, he gave this prophecy, the third prophecy that was a, a blessing to Israel as well. Verse 10, Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you've bountifully blessed them these three times. Therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. And so he gives them one more prophecy. And interestingly enough, in verse 17, he gives a prophecy of the coming Messiah and a star that would announce the Messiah. And what, what, what prophecy were those Israelite Parthian officials referring to when they saw the star? They were talking about a prophecy from Balaam, a sorcerer, a wicked man, a compromising man, and yet one that God could speak through his words. He said, I see him now, verse 17, but not now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of tumult. You know, maybe God talking through, or the angel talking through a donkey was a metaphor for God talking through Balaam. Who was the real donkey here? He goes home, and then in chapter 25 and verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. It doesn't say that Balaam was involved. But we find other places that hint to the fact that he had some involvement of getting Balak to figure out a way to weaken Israel. There was something wrong with his heart. <clears throat> we can read in, in different places. Like 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, Balaam the son of Beor loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude, verse 11, said, They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. Revelation 2, that we just read a little while ago, verse 14, says that Balaam taught Balak how to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. What is the lesson for us? Are we straddling the fence? Are we trying to play both sides? You know, this is often a test for our young people, wanting to keep one foot in the world and yet be in the church. Wanting to keep one foot in pleasing and reflecting the outside, but not wanting to displease God either. But compromising never ends well. As someone once said, he who sits on the fence gets a very sore rear end.
sitting on the fence does not work. What about us? Are we all in? Are we committed? Or are we just doing the bare minimum, like Balaam? Are we just narrowly following God and rolling around in our mind we, the gold and the silver and what we want and what we desire? You know, if we roll that around in our mind long enough, that's where we're going to go. And that seems to be what happened to him. We cannot compromise. <clears throat> Number four. Number four, as we're thinking about the, the keys and lessons of, of compromise, of not compromising. Number four, don't confuse compromising on the truth with matters of personal taste. Don't confuse compromising on the truth with matters of personal taste. We should never compromise on, on God's truth and his word and his values. But there is another definition of compromise if you look in the dictionary and that is to settle a dispute by mutual concession you know there are times when it's a matter of personal taste and personal choice that we 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 should give way we shouldn't demand our way every time <clears throat> we understand after a while that that's what makes relationships work but sometimes we get these two things mixed up where we let things slack on matters of integrity and, and ethics and standards in God's way, but we dig in our heels when it comes to our pride and our opinion in what we want and what we think. You know, we get upset with our mate on how the, the towels are hung, right? Does that ever happen at your house? Or, or how the, the, the toilet paper rolls. You know, are you a this way or that way person? You know, what, what, some of the things that we get upset about the most are, are really not the big issues. But their personal taste. Are we living this way with our husband or wife? Are we able to back off and back down from time to time? Or do we have to always have it our way? That kind of compromise is actually important. Not compromising with the truth, but with each other when there's just a matter of personal taste. We learn these things at different stages of life. Actually, we learn it on the playground when we're kids, right? Not everybody can swing at the same time, right? You've got to take turns. You go first, then I'll go. Then you go, then I go. We've got to compromise. But young people, don't compromise on your morals as you get to know others on what you allow to be put into your mind or what movies you watch or songs you listen to or how far you go up to the line of sin. The Bible says flee fornication. But do learn to compromise in friendships and siblings and working together and not demanding our way. 
All of us, you know, letting an offense go, turning the other cheek, answering with a soft answer. That's being willing to build a relationship. That's not bad compromise. That's, that's good compromise. But we must never confuse it with standing firm on matters of truth and doctrine and ethics. <clears throat> Number five. Number five, in talking about not compromising, remember that you're not alone. Remember that when we are striving to hold to the truth and we're striving to be a pillar, we're striving to do it God's way, we are not alone and yet we often feel alone. Especially if others are compromising. Notice in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. The story of Elijah is actually very interesting in this regard. On the matter of compromise. Elijah lived in a time when Israel had a very wicked king, Ahab, who was leading Israel to sin. Elijah confronted him from time to time. And scripture records another meeting here in verse uh, 16 of chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? You know, whenever we are in compromise and someone corrects us, it's easy to blame them for our problems. They're troubling us. It's certainly not my fault. We all have to look at ourselves. We all have a foot of clay. We all have areas where it's, it's very tempting to compromise. We all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. None of us can say we are perfect without sin. Only Jesus Christ can say that. When we're corrected, we need to think about it. We need to see if the shoe fits, even if it's coming in an uncomfortable way. Elijah challenges Ahab for a confrontation to settle the matter once and for all between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. So they meet in chapter 18 and verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. How long will you compromise? How long will you play both sides? You know, when we're compromising, we, we know it deep down inside. They did. It said they answered him not a word. You know, is there a lesson for us today in our generation? Doesn't God say to the last generation, to the era of Laodicea, how long will you halt between the two opinions? If you want to be zealous and, and hot and focused and committed, then be zealous and hot and focused and committed. 
If you want to play games, if you want to dabble in the world, play both sides, not fully commit, he says, then go out into the world. He says, I, I, I would rather you be cold or hot. If you're cold, I can deal with you. I'll have a plan for you. I'll work with you later. But if you want to be hot, don't sit on the fence. God wants us to make that choice. He wants us to choose the right thing. And he knows we can do it and he'll help us, but we've got to make that choice, don't we? Just like Elijah was telling the people there. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. He was going to determine and, and show once and for all who really is God. So, verse 25, Elijah told the prophets of Baal, you, you can go first. <clears throat> I'll let you go first. Choose a bull for yourselves. And a call on the name of your God. So verse 26, they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it. Called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he's a God. He either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Pretty funny if you think about it. You know, we, we, we just read right over this. But, but think about what it must have been like to watch this. For hours, the prophets of Baal were calling on their God to call down fire from heaven. For hours, and nothing happened. And of course, he mocked them. And they started cutting themselves and... They prophesied then into the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah, verse 30, said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come. Then he built an altar. He made a trench around it. Verse 33, he put the word in place, a uh, wood in place. He said, fill four water pots with water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then pour it a second time. And then pour it a third time. So he soaked the whole sacrifice. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. How long did it take to read that? Maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds? Who knows, maybe parts of it are not recorded. Maybe he prayed for a minute or two or five. But in a very short time, a very heartfelt prayer, 
It says, verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. Quite a remarkable display, dramatic display of God's power in showing who really was God. And showing that, the, the, you know, it doesn't make any sense to compromise. It hurts us when we compromise. You know, one of the most inspiring parts of this whole story is in the next chapter. We know, of course, that Elijah then actually flees from Jezebel. And in verse 14, he says in chapter 19, he says to the Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. God, it's only me. It's too much to bear. And they seek to take my life. And the Lord answered him, said, Go, return on your way to the wilderness. When you arrive, anoint Haziel king over Syria. Anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel. Anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah. And he says, finally, verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, in every mouth that has not kissed him. Are we really alone? We don't always understand. We don't always know. <clears throat> you don't, sometimes we feel alone. Mr. Meredith talked about that in a sermon not that long ago. At some point, we're going to have to face challenges alone. And we will feel alone. But are we alone? No. He said right here, there are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, when we're struggling with difficulties... We need to remember that others are fighting the fight as well. Our brethren, we, we, we heard about in the sermonette, about knowing one another and having a, a, a relationship with one another and understanding that we're all fighting the same fight against the pressures of the world together. We may not always know the struggles that everyone's going through, but we are not in it alone. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Let's turn over there just briefly here. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Trials, difficulties, they're hard. They wear us down. But he said there is a reason for it. 
And we can be strengthened by the fact that God is helping us. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. He will strengthen you. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We have to be tested. Now is the time to fight the good fight. To ask God for discernment, to know when to stand. And to know how to see compromise when it's rearing its head in our lives. Know how to identify it. Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. Notice Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. That attitude, the focus, helps us prepare for the challenges of the future, and we will have them. Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. We may feel like, you know, the trials, the difficulties right now, they're, they're, what could they possibly be accomplishing in God's plan? But he is using them to teach us and help us to grow in character, to root out compromise, to understand how to face challenges later. There's a quote from a book entitled The Outline of History by H.G. Wells on page 553. He says this, A very important thing for us to note is the role played by the emperor in the fixation of Christianity. Of course, he's talking about Constantine and those who came out after him. Not only was the Council of Nicaea assembled by Constantine the Great, but all the great councils, the two at Constantinople, 381, 553, Ephesus, 431, Chalcedon, 451, were called together by the imperial power. And it is very manifest that in much of the history of Christianity at this time, the spirit of Constantine the Great is as evident as or more evident than the spirit of Jesus. That's quite a statement. In other words, the compromise took root. And the church, after that time period, had more the spirit of the pagan emperors, so-called Christian, Christianized, but not the spirit of Jesus Christ. What about us? It comes down to which are we going to follow? Creeping Christmas may not be a big deal right now to us, a big test. <clears throat> Maybe working on the Sabbath is. Maybe overcoming a sin or a habit is our big deal right now. Maybe confronting a conflict with a brother or sister and working that out is the big deal. Maybe overcoming lethargy or complacency Developing those habits we heard talked about by Dr. Meredith a few weeks ago as well. 
Maybe those are the big deal. The question we have to answer, will we use the spirit of Constantine or the spirit of Christ? That's the choice we have to make. We have the truth. <clears throat> we have a precious commodity. Unfortunately, we're living in a time of great compromise. And we will be tested. But the rewards are unbelievable for those who pass the test. So brethren, as, as Christmas runs its course this week, as the Christmas songs are blaring in the grocery store the next few days and you can't get away from them, be grateful you aren't deceived. Be grateful that God has opened our eyes to see and our ears to hear. And that we're not wrapped up in this whole system. And that we can be a part of the work that is warning this world to come out of Babylon. And help those who are willing to and that God will call. But let's also use it as an object lesson. As a prod. To look for where compromise is lurking in our lives. And deal with it and face it and overcome it. Let's let the Spirit of God and of Christ dominate in our lives, not the Spirit of Christmas, not the Spirit of Compromise.